This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, November 30th, 2020. Border closure extension to at least January 21st will basically mean the end of snowbird season for many. Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, joins us to talk about vaccines, shopping during COVID, as well as asymptomatic testing in schools. And Pierre Polyev, conservative finance critic, talks about the federal government's fall economic statement. All of this starts now. Now we talk about another matter that impacts a whole swath of people who want to fly south as they do annually. Matter of fact, the week I just took off, traditionally, I'm golfing down in Florida and uh, could not do it. Not so much that we can't get down there. I get it that there are certain concerns with the pandemic, but the quarantine when you come back 14 days can really put a damper on a lot of people going about their business once they get home. To that end, let's find out how it is impacting travel when it comes to snowbirds specifically, and insurance is another uh, factor in the equation. Marty Firestone has joined us on the line, travel and insurance specialist, senior account executive, benefit and retirement solutions with NFP Canada. Marty, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me, John. Tell me about these. Uh, first of all, let's start with uh, the restrictions on international travel outside of the U.S. Uh, but you come into this country, you got to go into a 14-day quarantine. Are these uh, extended restrictions to January 21 going to impact snowbirds flying south and coming back? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, what we're seeing and have seen, the MO of the government has basically been... 30-day extensions each and every time that 21st of the month comes up. So, in fact, this is just another another uh, extension that will fall into place. And the problem is, is that many snowbirds that I have, I, I had said they were in two camps. One camp that says, I'm going, travel advisory or not. The other one says, I'll wait till the advisory is lifted. And at that point, I'll venture or think of heading down at that point. All right. And so uh, it's a wait-and-see approach to things. By the way... Uh, is there any problem getting insurance, travel insurance, medical insurance in heading south, let's say, uh, for snowbirds? No, there's not. Actually, from the insurer perspective, they have all come out with products that will cover you for COVID in one form or the other, either as a rider to a limited cap amount or embedded in the full policy contract. So insurance is not your problem for traveling right now. Quite frankly, the problem, I think, is more accessibility to a hospital if in fact that should ever come into play hmm. all right and so if that does come into play uh what do you do where do you go that, that's a big problem um many people would say to me i'll hop in a plane and come home if i don't feel well i answer that with well what if you have a 103 degree fever as you're going through security and they politely tell you to turn around and go back to your condo or your hotel and the big fear is is that you this is the part that people really, I'm trying to make it clear to them. You bought travel insurance many years ago prior to COVID for all the things that can go wrong when you travel, the slip and falls, the food poisonings, the uh, broken hips, those sort of things. 
they now will be impacted when they go to a hospital down south, let's say Florida, when they find out that the hospital's at full capacity, potentially because of COVID uh, issues with people from Florida. So one thing will be like a domino effect. And basically what used to be a simple procedure that admitted, looked after, and then let out will now be a long, drawn-out procedure. And who knows what will happen you know, uh, and there are some airports that are addressing uh, the phenomenon of testing. For example, at Calgary now, uh, for a couple of weeks anyway, they've had these rapid tests. Uh, don't know how that's impacting the travel. Is it, if you have your finger on the pulse as far as that's concerned, are more people confident they can travel and return there because you've got the rapid test that signifies you don't necessarily need a 14-day quarantine? Yeah, it, that, there's that, which appears to give people some form of peace of mind, although I'm not sure how it does, when you may not prove positive that day but the next day you could so i'm not sure where that's ending that but now that air canada's in uh in cahoots with a a, a large drug provider uh, or a large pharmacy to allow you to get um pre uh, pre-rapid test before you embark and go on the plane to leave the country so again what what's so bizarre about this is our government has advised travel three to avoid all non-essential travel Yet you've got this incentive, for lack of a better word, as I see it, to get you to travel. You have the airlines that are offering free COVID-19 travel insurance embedded in the price of the ticket. So it just absolutely boggles the mind. Again, with Marty Firestone, travel and insurance specialist, senior account executive, Benefit and Retirement Solutions, NFP Canada. Do you have any uh, numbers, like, I mean, as to how uh, seriously impacted, say, uh, the snowbird travel or migration south is this year by percentage? Uh, how far, how much is it down? Uh, I do, because I can look at my book and just tell you, and funny enough, that book uh, mirrors what you're hearing from the snowbird associations of the world. And that is roughly about 30% of my clients have already left and gone away this year. So 70% chose not to go away, chose to wait for the advisory to get lifted, possibly chose for the vaccine to get issued and distributed. Well, in other words, they're going to miss the bulk of the window anyway, right? Uh, if they're not out of here by March, what's the point? Well, that's the, the problem. Even with this extension, let's say, at some point you say it makes no sense to open up our home, uh, to travel down there, to rent a place. None of it will make sense once you get past a certain point. And I would think that point is pretty well at the end of January. What's the point of going away? I, you know, spring is coming. So I think that if it would have been done and you could have gone in November or December, then maybe you'd still go away. But at some point, it's just not going to make any sense to pack up and go. I wonder if uh, there were other destinations maybe outside of uh, the continental United States where people are, are deciding to travel instead if they want to avoid the winter. Are you getting any sense for that to the Caribbean, maybe uh, to southern Europe, Portugal, those kinds of places? Interesting. The, the fear there is even worse than the States because what if you end up in a hospital there and you're talking about not as uh, uh, an intense uh, ICU or the ability to handle your needs. So the, the concern is going down to Mexico, going to the Caribbean and all that. How will you get transported back to Canada if, in fact, you suffer a medical emergency? Is Canada going to have a bed for you in, in your province that will let that jet bring you back, uh, even a med, uh, medvac type jet? So I think basically... The ones who are rolling the dice are going to roll it, and they'll go anywhere. The ones who are being prudent and saying, I think I may take a passage here, are not going to go anywhere at all. 
All right. Uh, well, thanks for that snapshot on what is uh, the annual migration of folks who want to avoid the winter. And uh, goodness knows, those seem to be more and more of us. But this is not one of those years where that's advisable. According to Marty Firestone, travel and insurance specialist, senior account executive, benefit and retirement solutions at NFP Canada. Marty, really appreciate the uh, insight. Hope to talk down the road. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you for having me. You got it. Great day for talk radio, especially a great day uh, since we're hearing news that a vaccine is imminent. Well, uh, even where the people at Moderna were hoping to get approval from the FDA today and see this thing rolling out in a matter of two weeks or so, primarily in the States, Health Canada is still not having given the green light. But uh, we'd like to know the timeline as well. As a matter of fact, I was monitoring Doug Ford's presser in the uh, lunch hour, and he was saying, I need a date. I need a, a, a phrase I don't think he's used since his high school prom. Uh, but nonetheless, we'd all like to get a definitive timeline on this thing. So let's find out the latest. The Premier has joined us on the line here in the Oakley Show. And uh, having just come off a call, as I understand it, with the folks at Pfizer and perhaps AstraZeneca. Premier Ford, good afternoon and welcome back. Well, good afternoon, John, and thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, so am I uh, right to say you just uh, were on the horn earlier this afternoon with the folks at Pfizer and maybe AstraZeneca? That, that's correct. I literally just hung up from uh, the president uh, CEO of Pfizer and his team uh, here in Canada, and it was a, a really good discussion. We had a, a call with the president CEO of AstraZeneca as well earlier today, and tomorrow I'm getting on the line with Jensen and uh, the following day Moderna. Uh, we, we we need answers, uh, Johnny, and, and I'm, I'm just asking simple questions that everyone's asking. You know, when can we expect it? Uh, how much can we get of the vaccine? And then what what type of vaccine are we we getting? And uh, they're, they're they're really great uh, people. I, I have to tell you, AstraZeneca and, and Pfizer, they're doing everything they they can, and uh, everyone in the world is screaming for these. Uh, these different types of vaccines, and they, they you know, they, they did mention they couldn't give me an exact date, and I, I can appreciate that. And I, I think they're being very upfront and honest, uh, and as soon as they do, uh, they have my cell number. I gave everyone my cell number. We need to know uh, as soon as it lands, and, and we'll, we'll be ready. And, and I, I think they, they gave us one of the best compliments for a worldwide company like Pfizer, uh, and, and they're being very sincere. They, they said, you're, you're leading the world in the state of readiness. And that, that, that says everything. I, I give uh, all the credit to General Hillier. Uh, I do have to uh, give the credit to the, the federal government, too, uh, for, for working hard. And, you know, I, I, I can tell you, the, the, the prime minister and deputy prime minister and all the premiers, they're, they're all working their backs off, and they're all trying to, uh, get an exact answer uh, when we can get this, and there's no one that wants to get uh, it out the door more than I do, and the rest of the the uh, premiers and, and prime minister. Again, with Premier Ford, uh, so there wasn't any more specificity then. They weren't specific as to uh, what when these uh, vaccines would be available. Now that would be channeled through the federal government anyway, wouldn't it? Uh, that's correct. It all goes through the, the federal government. Uh, what what we're hearing is uh, anywhere in the first quarter which is anywhere from january to march and and my comments were you know january to march that's that's a long long time that's that's 90 days Uh, i said it to the uh the companies themselves i've said it to the prime minister we do not want to be last on the list uh when everyone else is getting the vaccine uh, here uk is 
going to roll theirs out on December the 7th, and I'm sure the Americans are going to be rolling it out there shortly after. But we can't be last in line. Uh, we have to be in line with, with everyone else. Well, my understanding is the people at Moderna were saying that, uh, yeah, we're already in a position to get 20 million doses of this, uh, you know, two doses per copy, but uh, and we've already put our dibs in or reserved that. That was one of the things I guess we speculated on early and we backed a winner. Uh, but insofar as us, when they say, you know, first quarter, January to March, is the holdup with Health Canada? Because Food and Drug Administration in the States is being asked this afternoon by Moderna, for example, to give it the emergency green light. Uh, what's holding things up in Canada? Well, again, what I understand through through Pfizer, that Health Canada is working, uh, you know, diligently. They're wor- they're working hard, and they're they're working with Pfizer uh, through all the different phases. Uh, they're they're rolling the information into Health Canada, be it phase one, phase two. They're rolling into phase three. So uh, they said that uh, Health Canada is working extremely hard. Again, I take them for their, their word, and I'm sure the, the folks up in Health Canada have never been under so much pressure in their entire entire lives uh, for the last uh, eight months. So they, they do need credit. And I, Johnny, I truly believe that, that every single company, every no matter if it's uh, uh, government or private sector, everyone is working uh, their hardest and uh, trying to get this vaccine out there. It almost it's, it's, it goes back to the days of uh, when everyone was scrambling for N95 masks around the world, and uh, everyone needed those masks. We, we came up, and we, we ended up producing them ourselves. And after the discussion, I, I made sure I always put the premier sales hat on, encouraging uh, AstraZeneca to expand their facility like Roche did. We, we won a competition with... Uh, Roche Pharmaceuticals, uh, 12 other countries in the world, they chose Ontario to uh, expand. And I asked AstraZeneca the same question along with Pfizer. Uh, we want you to expand here in Ontario and uh, grow and have opportunities. We, we have the brightest people uh, in the world right here in Ontario and the cream of the crop. And we also have uh, the quality of life. is so important for these large corporations when they move their their team here or hired new team members. They want to know that they're they're in a great uh, jurisdiction around the world, and there's no better place than than Ontario, where we can manufacture anything and everything uh, if given the opportunity. But the feds and the procurement minister Anita Anand said uh, we're better served to just uh, source internationally. Uh, we can't ramp up in time or uh, have the resources to do that. That's what she said. So uh, I guess that precludes that avenue. Uh, we're going to have to import. And certainly, you know, we're still on the list to get the uh, first tranche of doses, as I understand, certainly from Moderna. But when it comes to hitting the ground running, as you say, they've get, uh, got your cell phone number as soon as we're greenlit by Health Canada and the doses come into the country. Do we have the adequate resources and personnel to roll this thing out now? You suggested General, retired General uh, Rick Hillier was going to be in charge of this operation like Dyke, uh, like Ike at D-Day. Uh, how's that going to work? I mean, are you confident the rollout's going to be flawless? Yeah, well, that's a good analogy. This is going to be the, the most complicated, the largest logistical rollout uh, we've ever done anywhere in this country. And uh, there's no one better uh, than, than General Hillier. Uh, there's a lot of great generals out there. I just think General Hillier led the NATO forces in Afghanistan. Uh, he helped us through the ice storm. Uh, and if you had an opportunity to meet him, and, I'm, and I, I think you have, Johnny, but uh, this is a, a general, a real general. Like, he, he, no nonsense. 
we're going in here, we have a mission, we're going to accomplish this mission, we're going to be ready on 31 of December, and uh, yeah, this, this, uh, this general, is, it's no nonsense. We're, we're getting this job done, you've given me a mission, we're going to accomplish this mi- mission. So make no, no mistake about it, I think uh, Pfizer said it best, you're, you're leading the world. Uh, in, in the state of readiness, and we are. We're covering, uh, making sure we cross the T's, dot the I's, but it's definitely going to be a, a very, very complicated uh, uh, distribution here. All right, but you're confident then that we have the personnel and the wherewithal to do this, though, in rapid order, or I guess, you know, uh, expedite the whole thing so that uh, we're not still waiting around in the fall or, you know, later to uh, have everybody vaccinated. You're pretty confident? I'm very, I'm very confident. Never overly confident, but I'm very confident. When you put a team together uh, with General Hillier and a, a few of his uh, folks that worked with him over in Afghanistan, uh, plus the the table that we put together through the Solicitor General, Minister of Health, um, right right across the board, uh, we have our, our top-notch uh, people on this, and uh, this is the number one area we we have to focus on. Uh, making sure we get the vaccine out there. And, and, and until you, you actually look at Ontario, Johnny, and, and I've had the opportunity or even the privilege to be able to, to fly all around Ontario, it is massive. When I say massive, it is massive. Uh, you can drive down to Florida quicker than you can drive from one, one top of uh, Ontario out to the, the end up by Kenora. And then when you get up to Kenora, they say you still have 800 kilometers north yeah. to hit other other uh, northern rural and indigenous communities. Uh, but we, we have a plan for that as well. All right, again with Premier Doug Ford. Now, on the rapid testing, I've got to ask you, I know because uh, a lot of people think, you know, this will facilitate maybe air travel so people don't have to uh, when they return, uh, you know, quarantine for 14 days. There's even this asymptomatic testing that took place at Thorncliffe Public School, 433 asymptomatic people tested, 19 cases found, one teacher, uh, 18 students, uh, but it's still less than the overall community transmission rate at about uh, 16%, so it's only 4% in the school, so there's no closing there. But where are we with rapid testing and asymptomatic testing in the interim before the vaccine? Isn't that going to be an important development? Are we rolling that out sufficiently? Uh, I believe we are. Uh, we ended up getting, uh, I believe it was 98,000 uh, doses of the, the, I mean, test, I should say, test kits of the ID now. And what, what this is, is a, is a screening mechanism. It's, it's not 100%. Uh, they told me it's about 94%. But if you show positive, then, then we go for the, the next level test and, and get a 100% accuracy. But I, I, I truly believe uh, this is one tool, another game changer uh, of many tools that we're going out there, we're, we're purchasing as much as we can, and we're going to make sure that uh, critical areas, the frontline healthcare workers, long-term care uh, workers and uh, visitors uh, will be tested. And I, I think I said today, five days is make it a week. Uh, so every, every seven days we should be testing every single person that walks through uh the, the uh, long-term care homes in particular. Uh, we also are doing the asymptomatic testing in the, in the schools and the high-risk areas. And, uh, and right now, uh, to put it into perspective, uh, 99.9% of schools are, are COVID-free without uh, COVID. And, 
And it shows that the system that uh, we've all put together, I say all of us, because everyone was instrumental in putting this uh, program together, and uh, we, we feel uh, that it's the safest uh, school system, safest plan in the entire country, it shows that it's working, that we can catch, uh, you know, the, the, the students or, or staff uh, that show symptoms or have COVID-19, and we're able to, uh, you know, close down the, the four classes, but continue on with uh, the, the rest of the, the school. I think it's a good system. I give all the credit, by the way, to the principals and the teachers. I've got to ask you, though, Dougie, let me just uh, interrupt. Sorry, Premier, when you got uh, long-term care homes and now the numbers are starting to go up again as a case in Durham, uh, is reminding us of back in the spring, uh, hellacious times, how did we let this or where did this get away from us? Uh, I mean, how could this maybe have better been uh, safeguarded against? Well, I get You know something, Johnny? I, I'm, I'm going to be politically correct here. I'm usually not. This this virus is not coming in through the ceilings and the walls and the windows. It's being brought in from the, the, the most phenomenal, unintentionally, because they're incredible people that have put their lives on the line through the workers and through through visitors that, that come in and they want to see a loved one. Uh, they need to be tested. And at, at the beginning of this pandemic, there was a little bit of uh, kickback uh, about, uh, you know, have mandatory testing, but, you know, enough is enough. Uh, they're, they're, they're absolute heroes. I want to tell you, the PSWs, they really are. They've put their, their uh, communities and long-term care ahead of themselves and their families. And uh, unintentionally, uh, they, have, they contact it. They bring it in. And as I always say, it, it goes through these long-term care homes uh, like a Australian bushfire. And it is extremely hard. Uh, but it's still happening is what you're saying. It's still happening or it's happening again now with the second wave. Well, where the, the greater the spread in the community, there's a higher risk in schools, a higher risk in, in long-term care. Um, yeah. when, they, when we see the numbers go up, more people have it out there, no matter if you're a healthcare worker or, or you're working in a factory, uh, there's a higher chance of bringing it in to your, your place of uh, work. Which is why I guess we want to get the numbers down. Sorry to interrupt. I've got a few moments yet still. I've got to ask you because, I mean, when we've got these numbers at like 1,800 and uh, the seven-day average is over 1,700, so what criteria would have to be met before we uh, lift or maybe extend the December 21st deadline on restrictions in Toronto and Peel, say? Well, we, we need to see the numbers uh, drop down in, in all areas. Right now with I, ICU, and that, that's our, our biggest fear. We, we can look at the numbers. I, I look at all the numbers, including uh, the capacity of the ICU. As much as we've increased uh, our capacity, uh, we have 168 uh, ICU patients, uh, over 618 people hospitalized in, in a region. And, and what we've seen in, in the provinces, there's four jurisdictions that don't have any COVID cases and 11 with only five. So when you when you see the buildup around Appeal and Toronto, and especially let's say Scarborough, North Etobicoke, or, or throughout uh, Brampton, Calgary, and Mississauga, and you have the vast majority of the cases concentrated in a small area, those hospitals end up filling up real quick. And that, so that's, but, but what would the numbers have to come down to? I mean, uh, right now we're at 17, as I say, uh, roughly in the ICU numbers, uh, you want to see them down by 20%, 50%. I mean, is there, does anybody have sort of a benchmark? Well, well, right now, what we're trying to do is incrementally lower them. I can't give you a definite uh, number, 
right off my, my head. I, I always rely on the health table to give me the advice, and then we, we go to our cabinet, and and then we make the decisions based on uh, the experts, the health experts. And it's not it's not one doctor or two doctors. There has to be a hundred different doctors, epidemiologists. We have economists on on the table. We have uh, a wide range of uh, different groups, health uh, professionals, giving us advice. And I, I always say, I mean, I'm a business person. My heart breaks for these small business owners, and um, we're, we're doing everything we can. We immediately doubled the, the funding to $600 million to support these businesses and took care of their overhead and their taxes and their, their gas and their electricity uh, costs 90% of their, their rent and 65% of their wages. Um, but, Bobby, let me just interrupt because I know they're grateful for it, but a, a lot of the restaurateurs and the bar owners and things like that have expressed to me on this show and elsewhere that they're not responsible for the community spread or nobody can convince them that they are because they put all the protocols in place and, you know, they're uh, very, very much conscientious of how they operate their business. You know, they don't want to lose their license or the uh, ability to conduct their business. Is there any proof for the health table that these are the places where the community spread is? Because we had that party the house party the airbnb out in mississauga on a weekend 62 people being charged or 62 found ins 27 charges i guess uh isn't that really where it's happening i mean are restaurants and bars they'd like some data some hard evidence that they're really responsible for this because they're paying the brunt of the price aren't they you know something johnny my, my heart goes out to these, these small business owners the restaurant owners we all know a tremendous amount of restaurant owners and when we see the, the modeling, you know, it, it's being spread right across the community. And with the, the, the restaurants, what, what health is trying to do? The health table is trying to keep people from, from as much as possible from going out there, traveling, and, and going from place to place to place. You could, you could go to three small uh, businesses, pick up your goods, then you go for, a, you know, a dinner and the, the chances increase that uh, if you're asymptomatic or you have symptoms and you're, you're going out there, the, the spread is greater. So the, the, the point of finger at, at one area or, or just restaurants, it, it's not right, it's not fair, and it's not, it's not accurate. And I, I don't believe that the command table, the health table is doing that. They're saying it's spreading right across the community. And to your point, uh, people gathering again in these large parties, you know, it's a, it's just unacceptable. And if I if I could sit down and talk to the hundred people that were there, or how many there were, uh, I'd, 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 I would guarantee you, Johnny, that um, you know there, there's people that have sacrificed elective surgery um, because of this pandemic. And I'm sure out of those hundred, they have friends or relatives that should be in there having surgery, and they aren't. They're, everyone knows uh, someone that is battling cancer. And everyone knows someone that may have other uh, problems that they have to get into the hospital, be it heart problems or other problems. Think about them. If, if you want to be reckless and careless and, and go out there and think this doesn't exist, maybe maybe they should watch a, a couple of videos that I've seen of these poor patients uh, on ventilators, you know, gasping for, for, for their lives. It's terrible. It is let, terrible. Me ask you, let me ask you, Premier... Yeah, no. 
Finally, I've got to ask, because, you know, a lot of people have uh, wondered why it is that big box stores still get, you know, special dispensation. I know that they're serving groceries or essentials, but uh, they're saying this is not a level playing field. The smaller businesses selling the same type of stuff, flowers, for example, feel they're being unjustly penalized. I mean, how do we square that circle? You know, something, you, you got a good question there. They're Walmart and Costco's of the, of the world and the other uh, big food retailers, they're at 50% capacity. And uh, when I ask the, the same question, they, they come back with the same answer. Johnny, we want to reduce the amount of travel you're going from store to store. But I have a suggestion, and I, I, I mentioned this to my girls and, and my wife, I, I, because everyone feels for these small businesses. I said, rather than going to these big box stores, all of us, if we all ordered online, and not on the big online retailers because they're making tons of money, why don't we just go to a local store, go online, order it, and go buy and pick it up? Or uh, take, take, out, take out food uh, a couple times a week if you can afford it. I guarantee you, if everyone did that once a week to help small businesses and the government's paying for their overhead, they'd have a much better uh, opportunity of getting through this. And, and I just encourage everyone to go out there, order online, pick up, pick up something that you might otherwise be going through one of these big box stores. Um, and it's uh, it's challenging, uh, to say the least, for these these small companies. So that, that's what I'm encouraging everyone to do: is go out there and and please uh, order online, order food, order order any uh, items that you might be buying for Christmas in these small local retailers. Wish we had more time. There's still more to discuss, but we'll save it for another day. There's always something happening here in the throes of this crisis. And right now, as we speak to the uh, fall budget update from the feds, uh, I'll leave you on that note because I think you need more money from them to uh, sort of make ends meet in this province with some of the uh, proposals that you put forward, especially, you know, with uh, health transfers and things like that. Premier Ford, it's always a delight to have you on the program. Hope we can do it more often. I'll look forward to it again real soon. Well, thank, thanks so much, Johnny. And I just want to give a shout-out to everyone. 99.9% .9 of the people, companies out there, are just going full steam and uh, will always have your back. So we'll always be there to, to support you any way we, we can. And we will get through this, and we'll come out stronger than ever before. Again, thanks so much for your time, thank as you. always. Thank you. Take care. All right. Yeah, you too. All right. Premier Doug Ford, Oakley Show. Pierre Polyev is weighing in, conservative finance critic. Uh, Mr. Polyev, always a pleasure to have you on the Oakley Show here in Toronto. Good afternoon. Great to be with you, John. So tell me, I mean, uh, based on what you heard earlier this afternoon, and I mean the projection, if I've got it right, is that the uh, national debt is heading north of $1 trillion. Uh, do we have a problem with what was being uh, forecast for the spring budget or uh, what was being uh, promised by way of new spending from the finance minister earlier today? Yes, it means that we're still in the credit card economy rather than the paycheck economy. Uh, the national credit card is going to grow by almost $400 billion this year. That deficit uh, uh, smashes the previous all-time record of $50 billion. In other words, it is eight times bigger than the previous record. We have the biggest deficit as a share of GDP in all of the G20. And uh, as if that weren't enough, uh, we've gone from having a debt-to-GDP ratio of 30% to a debt-to-GDP ratio of 56%, which means we are now 
within reach of the all-time debt record uh, in that hit in the mid-90s when it was at 66%. And you'll remember we actually had a financial crisis then where we nearly defaulted on our debt. So we're not over the cliff. We're not even right on the edge of the cliff, but the cliff is in view and the government is running as quickly as possible towards it. And that means that if we don't slow down all of this debt, we are indeed going to run off the edge of a very dangerous financial cliff. Interesting you say that, because conversely, uh, when I hear from some economists uh, who submit that, you know, uh, we can even increase that uh, that number, the debt to GDP with a robust recovery economy, uh, we can handle that and interest rates are low and all the rest of that. Uh, so you're saying 56%, getting close to that 60% debt to GDP, because that's the one the Liberals like to trundle out as the real metric, they say, of the economic vitality of the country or its potential. Uh, but you're saying that's an ominous note that uh, 56% we're heading at. Well, in, 19, in the mid-1990s, our finance officials went out tried to borrow some money. And no one in the world would lend Canada a, a nickel. And our, at that time, our debt was 66% of our economy. Now it's 56% and rising quickly. So do the math. Uh, we're only 10 points away from that same kind of crisis level. The other difference is that right now, our households and our businesses have far more debt than they did back in the 90s. So when interest rates rise, not only will it hammer government uh, costs, but it will hammer household budgets as well, because families will be stuck paying more interest payments. Businesses will be laying off workers to pay interest on their debt. And all the while, the government will be looking for more money from all, both businesses and families to pay interest on its debt. So we are setting ourselves up for a big problem. We're not off the cliff yet, but we're heading towards it. We need prudence and confidence uh, and competence now to avoid falling off. Well, what was it about the uh, budget update today that caught your attention, especially? I mean, just the raw numbers of the money or where it's being allocated or promised? Well, simply put, Canadians want their lives back. Uh, the, uh, the jobs that they've lost, the recreation and family enjoyment that is, has been eliminated because of COVID has been necessary but grueling. And they assumed that today they were going to hear from the government a plan to fix the fact that we're at the back of the pack to get a vaccine. And so while the Americans, the Brits, the French, the Mexicans will be vaccinating their populations starting next month, we're going to have to wait as long as September, according to the prime minister. And so the suffering and the massive economic costs will go on longer here than anywhere else. It's like we paid the most to get the least, the biggest deficit in the G20, but we're at the back of the pack for the medical treatments, and we have the second highest unemployment in the G7 behind only socialist Italy. So we paid the most for the worst results. That's what really struck me today, John. Again, with Pierre Polyev, finance critic for the Conservative Party. On this matter of, uh, by the way, the the vaccine and uh, spoke to Premier Ford uh, last hour and uh, he was saying that he talked to AstraZeneca as well as Pfizer earlier this afternoon and they said it's coming uh, he hasn't got a fixed or firm date yet so he's frustrated by that Prime Minister says you know he's anticipating most Canadians will be vaccinated by fall you're saying that's only when the vaccine may be rolling out so I don't know what the timeline is going to be uh, 
But on that front, I'm curious, is it Health Canada that's holding up green lighting the vaccine for Canada to be accessed by Ontarians and, you know, other provinces? What's the holdup then to your mind? The, the major holdup began back in the summer when Trudeau tried to put all his eggs in the basket of buying a vaccine from China. And while he was waiting for that option to fail, all the other countries were locking in the the, the first dibs on doses of a future, then future vaccine. So they all locked in contracts with the major providers of vaccines in you know June, July. Trudeau was fiddling around with China until then, at which point he realized that wasn't going to work. And so the government then signed on after everyone else. Now, the government will say that we've got more vaccines pre-purchased than any other country. And that's true. The problem is the time frame. We get them last. And so we're going to have to wait longer. And that means rolling shutdowns. It means small businesses closed and their employees sent homes. It means more parents dying in nursing homes without their kids, all while we wait uh, for vaccines that will have by then been widely available to billions of people in other countries. You see, it was my understanding that Moderna, uh, I think they told the CBC yesterday that we were one of the first in line because we've reserved 20 million doses with the potential to uh, option more. Are you saying uh, we'll get the doses, but we won't get them in a timely fashion? I thought we were going to be one of the first in line. What do you hear? What do you know on that front? Well, the first thing to note is Moderna is only one of the providers. So the government has pursued, I think, seven different providers. Uh, So our ranking with one provider does not guarantee us a full um, uh, complement of vaccines in time to serve our population while other countries are getting them. So uh, Moderna is one supplier. We might be, we have better priority with that one supplier, but with the rest, we're near the back of the pack. We're behind our competitor countries for sure. Uh, the Americans are going to be rolling up mass vaccinations next month, uh, and our other uh, peer countries are doing likewise. And as the Prime Minister has says that the vast majority of Canadians won't be vaccinated until September. So um, that means the we are suffering needlessly over the next several months while others are getting on their feet. So the point being, this will delay the economic recovery. Uh, to wit, then, it's going to cost more money uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, as it has its consequences, the ripple effect. But when we talk about the recovery and the potential for it, like how do we strike the right balance, Mr. Polyev, between uh, a recovery and programs that would be geared towards recovery and those that would enhance uh, social programs that have been starkly shown to be lacking in terms, well, against the uh, backdrop of the pandemic? I know uh, your counterpart, uh, Jagmeet Singh, in the comments today was talking up a national uh, pharmacare program, national child care, which the Liberals seem very intent on proceeding with. Today, maybe the precursor to a full-on budget uh, announcement in the spring. And uh, everything like that. I mean, how, where do we find the right balance to strike on these fronts? Well, I fail to see how a government that uh, is the, uh, has landed us at the back of the pack for vaccines and rapid testing, and by the way, has lost track of 20,000 infrastructure projects, uh, is qualified to take over control of our daycares, drug plans, and seniors' homes. 
Uh, what makes us think that we'll have better child care if the federal government is directing it? What makes us think that parents uh, would be better off if they're forced to pay through their taxes for government child care rather than having the freedom to choose their own child care and spend their own money directly on it? Um, what makes us think that the 92% of Canadians who already have supplementary drug plans will be better off if the government takes over those plans and their employers stop providing them. I mean, I want your listeners to think carefully. It sounds wonderful when Trudeau promises a new drug plan, but you all, many of your listeners already have drug plans, and their employers are not going to continue those plans if the government is doing it and charging them taxes to provide it. So a lot of people could end up with much worse supplementary medical coverage than they have right now. Uh, and finally, on, when it comes to seniors' homes, it's not federal jurisdiction. The government of Canada has no legal authority to take them over. Uh, it would be up to the provinces to do that. So it, it seems like sort of meaningless uh, promise-making on behalf of the federal liberal politicians. I want to get you uh, to comment, too, on something that was uh, uttered by uh, the Prime Minister before the United Nations and talking about the pandemic as uh, kind of a veil, as it were, for a great reset. Uh, do you think he has that very much in mind? Uh, some are uh, really renouncing that that was his intention. But what do you make of this idea of a great reset being in play by the Liberals? Well, they're his words. I mean, he said them in his speech to the UN. He said he wanted a reset, that he believed that the uh, COVID crisis uh, was an opportunity, in his words, that is a quote, to pursue some of his pre pandemic policy objectives and accelerate those objectives. Um, so again, these are not policies related to helping us get through the pandemic. They're policies he dreams, he dreamt about before, but couldn't get away with. But now that the population is um, uh, kind of, um, paralyzed with fear uh, and angst, uh, he thinks he has an opening to impose this agenda. And the agenda uh, includes massive new and permanent new expansion of government, um, massive new taxes to pay for it, uh, and uh, a massive control by politicians over the lives of everyday citizens. Um, and uh, so uh, he might uh, now be trying to backtrack from his original use of that language, but that was he let the cat out of the bag during his speech to the UN, uh, and uh, that's his real agenda. Our agenda, on the bike, by contrast, is to get people's lives back. Let them get their jobs so that they can earn a great paycheck and uh, live a great life. Canadians want a practical government focused on restoring livelihoods and lives, not trying to transform Canada into something it's not. But is there uh, some merit in spending our way back to prosperity? No, government spending does not deliver prosperity. Never has. There's no example in human history of where government spending has produced economic prosperity. Economic prosperity is produced by our workers and our entrepreneurs. So the 20 million Canadians who get out of bed every day and put their shoulder to the wheel, they are the ones that deliver all of our prosperity. Now, governments necessarily have, have a role in spending that prosperity on the essentials of life, health care, education, basic infrastructure, military, police, etc., but make no mistake, all of that wealth is originally produced by our workers and our entrepreneurs, not by our politicians and bureaucrats.
Always a pleasure to have you on the program uh, with a clarity of thought. Pierre Polyev, conservative finance critic. All the best to you. Talk down the road. Great to be with you, John. As always. All right, Pierre Polyev. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, November 30th, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.